Hello, everybody, and welcome. This is TL, and you are now on the front line. Yes, it's still a stereo podcast, even though we are live. And I'm glad you're sticking with me. I got an interesting show for y'all today. Only if you knew what I had planned. I don't even know. I I don't even know if I'm ready for the show today. But I hope y'all tune in and we can get moving. Um, I'd like to just thank a few of my my listeners out there who are starting to become viewers. Um, This is the second time going live on Facebook. I'm still working through the kinks. Got a wonderful guest for us today. Uh, for my millennials, I am definitely going to give you a lineup. And oh, man, it's, it's, what a wonderful time to be alive. I still got all the energy that I usually have. Uh, newfound respect for being live and exposing yourself as my North Star, who I usually have with me, who's not on the show today. Tori would say it's some, it definitely takes some courageous vulnerability. Today, we're going to talk about race. And as we take this unfamiliar path in the conversation about race, I've been asked, were you raised to see color? In my generation, of course, TL was raised to see color. (laughs) Would the younger generations be better off being raised to see no color in this all lives matter quest? Would all be better off colorblind? Hey, you know my answer. If you've been listening to the show, you know me, TL. I always say, That's a big, huge no for me. But that's me. You can buy into the one race conversation if you want to. Yeah, there's one race. There's the human race. If you want to buy into that conversation, you can buy into that conversation. But I believe wholeheartedly that if we take this approach, then nothing changes. That choice to disregard necessitates a consideration of all the things you wish to disassociate from the subject, that subject being black people. So as you take this ride with me, I'm definitely going to have the conversation with you and just think if you are colorblind, you don't get a chance to get the culture behind the color. It's like me growing up on the west side of Chicago for the majority of uh, my life. (laughs) You know, they would say I'm from the dirt. I'm from the hood. Then going to a high school in a western suburb, suburban area, Oak Park stand up, being thrust into that school where I, I, I came from a predominantly black environment. If there was a white person walking on the west side of Chicago, um, we would say, are you lost? <laughs> because there's definitely not many white people on the west side of Chicago. Being thrusted into a predominantly white school, tons of black people there, but a predominantly white school. And as I'm thrusted into this white school, the first guy to introduce himself to me, a white guy, say, what's up, my nigga? When you're thrusted into those situations, and you have never dealt with them before, you don't know how to respond to them. You don't know the culture of the community yet. And this white guy clearly isn't the typical white guy. Oak Park River Forest graduates of the 90s, you know exactly who Sean is. And you know he's not the typical white guy. So you know when he come up to you and say, what's what's up, my nigga? Most of the time, I know what black people finna say, don't say it's cool, TL. Most of the time with that guy, it would be cool. But I didn't have the community culture yet. So coming from a predominantly black area, well, what's up, my nigga from a white guy would cause a beat down. It taught me something about being thrusted outside of my community and and having to learn a a different culture. So was I raised to see color? Absolutely. But how you see color is important. Just as you want to know the differences of a, a, a pepper, 
before you eat them, the shape, the color of it, right? The, the color, right? Before you take that dark red pepper that's really small and you know it's hot and you know it's hot and it's dangerous over that big red bell pepper or yellow bell pepper, that's the same situation that I'm talking about. But before I get too deep into that situation, like I said, for my millennials who, who can't, hold, um, can't hold the conversation with me too long, I just want to give a lineup to tell you guys what I'm going to be talking about today. And you know how I like to do it. I like to do it with my music on, and I like to make sure y'all stick with me through the whole situation. So, with that being said, today's lineup. I have an amazing guest for us. Sitting backstage waiting for us right now, Miss Rashia Rashaya G. Miss Rashia G is not only an activist, but she's an attorney. She's an attorney of law. She can tell us from a cr criminal side. She can tell us from a family law side. She can, she got a lot of opinions, y'all. This one's gonna be a very interesting conversation with Miss Rashia G. I'm absolutely excited about it. So I'm hoping you're excited about it. And today's topic that we're gonna talk about on the Frontline Stereo Podcast live. Yes, I am live. I'm excited about being live, y'all. I gotta get used to it. Can't hide behind the um, podcasting dark webs anymore. <laughs> um, Today's conversation will be about racial neutrality. That's her thing. And I'm gonna let her go at it. You know me, if you are looking for the news, this is not it. This is just me having couch conversation with a bunch of experts and professionals. And you know what I do? I ask the questions. So I'm gonna ask the questions today for Ms. Rashad G. I, I'm, I'm hoping y'all enjoy her as much as I enjoy her. Stick with me as I bring her in and give her a warm, um, front lines, welcome. I definitely want you guys to chime in today. I know I had some technical difficulties last week, but I see you out there. Um, Mike Finnick, I, buddy, I see you out there. TJ, one of my regular listeners, I see you out there. Zender, sweetheart, I love you. I'm glad you're out there. I definitely want you guys to chime in, and um, whether it be in a comment or whether it be um, you actually joining us, on the show, I definitely just want you to chime in. How do you chime in, TL? They say, how do you chime in? Well, if you look in the comments, I'm posting it right now. If you look in the comments, there's a link that you can click on to chime in. And trust me, you can click on that link anytime you're ready and chime in, in into our situation and ask myself or the guests a, a question. Y'all know what time it is. It's time to get to it. This conversation, like I said, I'm sitting down with this activist and this attorney who has some heavy opinions about racial neutrality. So let's come on up close to the front line. Everybody, please give a warm welcome to my guest. Like I said, you're gonna enjoy her. Just sitting down with her and letting her amplify her voice um, hailing from Toledo, Ohio, uh, Rashia Law Firm, black activist is Miss Rashia G. Please welcome her to the show. Hey, there you are. Here I am. Can you hear me okay? I can't hear you okay. I got you in motion, don't I? All right, the, the well, crowd got you. I wanted you. to apologize to your uh, viewers. I'm, Keep talking. Can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Okay. I'm on my way to see Dave Chappelle in oh, Yellow Springs, sweet. Ohio. So I'm on the expressway while I'm, while I'm on the show. So you'll have to forgive me. This isn't the ideal setting. I'm in the car. 
Um, my friend Reem is driving. Shout out to Reem. <laughs> she also has one AirPod in so she can hear us. Um, so if, I forgive me if this isn't a traditional setting or if for some reason there's a technical difficulty. It is me trying to get the Dave Chappelle. I know one of the things I want to talk about, I used your words today in my opening. I said the choice to disregard necessitates a consideration of all things you wish to dissociate yourself from. And that was the thing that we had our conversation about when it came to racial neutrality. And I want you to share with the listeners today on the front line. They used to, I mean, they're, they're an active bunch when I got my stuff together. I just want you to share your thoughts on racial neutrality and, and people who are raised to say, I don't see color. I don't see black and white. I just see human. I, that's not me. Yeah. I actually, I think the first time I said that phrase um, was when I was in law school. And I had someone say to me, I don't even see you as black. Um, and they meant it as a compliment, right? Mm. They meant to say, you're not black to me. You're, I, I guess, clear. One of those, right? one of those and, backhand uh, comments. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's a backhanded compliment. Um, and, I, and I had to break it down to them. I said, you know, I had to explain why that in and of itself is racist. First, if you say, I don't see you as X, right? But you don't say that to everyone you encounter, right? right. If you don't say to everyone you encounter, I don't see color, you only say it to black people or you only say it to people of color, then it, the statement is in fact triggered when you see color, right? It belies the contention. You can only, if you're only making that statement to people of color, you're only making it when you see color. That's the first thing. Second thing, and I think that this point um, dovetails with the, the quote that you use, if nothing was wrong with my race, you wouldn't have to not see me that way. Hello. Right. What you meant to say was that you don't associate any of the negative stereotypes of race with me, stereotypes that you had to think about in order to disassociate. So you've already thought about all of the negative things about being black, right? And what you're trying to say to me is, I don't see you as those things. Right. right. That's that's but, one of those. But, you're you're not lazy. You're not you, you're well spoken. Right. One of, like right. you said, a backhand yeah, compliment. That's right. right. That's right. That's exactly right. And the reality is that colorblindness as an ideology is a flawed analogy to actual colorblindness. Right. Because people who are actually colorblind never perceive color in the first place, which is very different from perceiving it and then attempting to disregard it. Right. You've already rung the bell. You're trying to say you didn't hear it. Right, which is different from literally not hearing the bell, right? So those are really important distinctions, never perceiving versus perceiving and trying to disregard. And what I tell people is that racial neutrality is not possible in a society that's largely predicated on race. Race has been ingrained into our societal fabric since the founding of this country. It is embedded into our constitutional documents. It really, really structured how our societies were arranged, who had access to what. I mean, a presumption of citizenship or bondage was was resurrected um, by a skin tone, right? If you were black, you were presumed a slave. You needed paperwork either to show you had permission to be off the plantation or that you were free. And if you were white, you were presumed a citizen. And then that presumption was put into our laws in the Dred Scott decision. Chief Justice Taney said, not only are, can, are black people not citizens, they can never be. They don't have any rights that a white person is bound to respect. That's the language in a Supreme Court decision from this country. Wow. So when you have that as your foundation as a country, there's no there's, racial neutrality isn't even possible. It's too deeply ingrained in our society. Wow. 
I mean, like, that's one. I mean, look, this is one hell of a conversation. Look, I don't want to stop you, man. Look, this is this is one of the <laughs> one of the situations. I mean, like, I'm I'm enjoying listening to you. I hope the listeners are enjoying listening to you. You got your girl saying stop through because she ready to go. She, I, I think she she even um. <laughs> I, I seen a picture out there that that brings up another conversation that I wanted to speak with you about about how black equality is black inequities or or black or racial inequality is conf, a, a conflated thing. Not only did I have to yeah. look up the word conflate, <laughs> I'll be honest, I don't know if y'all out there know what the word conflate means, but I, I was learned as as Kevin Hart said, "You gonna learn today." I learned that day when she said conflate. I say. That's one hell of a statement, but I need to know what the word conflate means. So for the people who don't know what conflate means, please explain to them what conflate means. And then just share with me a little bit of the um, items or the or the other subjects that you feel are yeah, so inequalities are conflated with. Yeah. So so conflate. I love the word conflate because what I think of when I think of it is you collapse one thing into another and you say that they're the same. Right. And so what we've done as a society is we've collapsed racial equality into racial neutrality. We've said that they're the same. That mm. the way to be equal is to pretend that race isn't there at all. And that's an actual legal framework. Legal colorblindness is the standard to which our laws aspire to. And um, there's actually a legal scholar, her name is Kimberly Crenshaw. She has a YouTube video on this where she breaks this down and it's incredible. I mean, it is it is mind-blowingly incredible. Uh, but that's one of the things that she argues is that we believe that being um, neutral means being fair, right? And, and in any other context, that may be true. But in this country where we start off as racist, when you start pretending that racism doesn't exist or racism, race and racism don't exist in a society that is inherently racist, that only serves to um, advantage those people who are already in power. It only serves to further marginalize those people who are already oppressed because I'm the person who needs you to see race, right? The race that isn't being oppressed doesn't need you to see race because that's not a um, defining characteristic of their life. The person who's oppressed is the person who needs you to see race because I need you to understand how that's shaping my life so that we can fix it. You can't confront a problem you don't see. Right. If you're going to ignore it, if you're not going to acknowledge it, it's impossible to confront. And I need you to confront this. So not seeing my race doesn't help me. It helps you. It, it lets you feel comfortable. Right. Because race is a space that we don't feel comfortable in as a society. It allows you to keep your comfort intact. It allows you to not have to confront my history. And it allows you to keep up a facade of being a good person, because now you can say I'm doing this for your benefit. Right. I'm being racially neutral because that's what racial equality looks like. I'm trying to be equal and fair to you. And so um, we've had, we've been able to distort. Um, and actually it's so funny because the language derives from another Supreme Court case, Plessy v. Ferguson. Look at right? you, Plessy you gonna bring this lawyer talk to the, to the show. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> Plessy v. Ferguson is the case, it's the rail car case, right? It, Plessy is the black man who looks white, who's trying to sit in a white car and the Supreme say no. He says the law, and, and one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is the reason they even challenge that law is because Blacks, up until that point, Blacks had been experiencing relative equality, right? We had the Reconstruction era. We had Blacks holding office. We had Blacks participating in politics. We had Blacks experiencing relative equality, and Jim Crow laws were passed in response to that. And this, this real car law, the segregation law, was one of those laws. The folks in Louisiana were like, nope. Not here. We know what equality feels like. We've been sitting in the car next to you for over a decade and it's been fine. 
we're not going to let you uh, separate us now. And that was the challenge, essentially. And it uh, was the, the dissent. Chief Justice Harlan dissented, and he said, we should be colorblind. And if you read the language of the dissent, it mirrors everything I'm saying now, right? Which is Chief Justice Harlan didn't say we should be colorblind because black people are great and I love them. Chief Justice Harlan said, we're white and we already have the advantage. And as long as we keep doing what we're doing, we don't need any extra stuff. This law is extra. We don't need it. So it wasn't even a, a favorable or lovely opinion. And we took that language that our laws should be colorblind and we later on resurrected it and we validated it and we said his dissent was right. When in actuality, his dissent was also problematic. We just didn't think about it hard enough. Hello. Well, look, we, I, I thank you for that. I do have a comment coming in from um, our frontline listeners. Mike Fennick says, um, but how can we begin to start explaining this is a society that feels that we've beat racial issues post Barack Obama? I hope that if anybody was under the impression that we've beat racial issues, that that, that uh, illusion has been ripped in the last month. Um, I'm not sure who thought we were post-racial. Uh, I don't mm. think black people thought we were post-racial. Um, I think that that was a belief almost exclusively held by non-people of color. Um, right. And so one of the things that I have been working to do in, in spaces that I occupy is to use the language of color consciousness, right? Because if we acknowledge race in the space, one, it alleviates the tension around it. Race is constantly the elephant in the room. It doesn't have to be. If you call it out, you name it, you identify it, you confront it, it loses its power. Right. So if we start using color conscious language, acknowledge race in the space, confront race in the space, I think that that can actually help us evolve to a colorblind society. I think pretending race isn't there, though, would do the exact opposite, because the reality is that people of color, uh, indigenous people, black people, native black <clears throat> Americans, of of which we is a term we are <laughs> coining on the Frontline Stereo podcast. The um, I did what have term? A, native black Americans. Okay, <laughs> that's that's, a, that's that's our term on the on the frontline stereo podcast. But I do have a question for you. I heard one of the weirdest terms just recently. It's called white allergies. It's this term that talks about how white people are allergic to some of the ideas that we present when it comes to race and racism. It's basically they've been laying. It's it's basically the, their upbringing that has been laying dormant that they don't even see the backhand comments. Um. Frontline listener Mike Fennick, I appreciate your your comment. We have we do have another comment as I as I as I bring this, as I also talk about the um, white allergies. Um, Zenda Marshall says, "How do you make people feel comfortable to have conversation about race then? Because that white allergy is laying dormant, and they don't even know they're racist." <laughs> So I'm going to do two things. The first thing is I'm going to address your white allergy. I think there's already a term for this that might be more appropriate uh, in the in the uh, literature, in the field. We call this white fragility, Ooh. white fragility that white people have been so care. We've been so careful and delicate with how we engage them on these issues that now anytime you attempt to call them out on racist behavior and, and not even call them out, anytime you attempt to engage racism in their space, they get defensive, they get hostile, they feel guilty, there's all this shame, right? And so um, 
um, white fragility is the term that we use to describe this kind of impulsive response by white people to discussions of race as being one of defensiveness or fear or hostility. There's a great book about this. It's called White Fragility. It's by Robin D'Angelo. If you haven't read it or listened to it, you should. It's amazing. Um, but she talks about that and she talks about navigating that. And it's a book really for white people. I think mm -hmm. it's a great read for everyone, but it's for white people. And it talks about helping them process that fragility. And so I, I would encourage you uh, to think about that, merging that or using that interchangeably with your white allergies. Uh, <laughs> because it really is, it's, I think you're talking about the same phenomenon and I think it helps if we all have the same language tools because mm -hmm. I think that that's part of why white people are so defensive and so hostile is because they don't have the tools to navigate these discussions. Race isn't taught in schools. Studies show that over 75% of white people have no friends of color. Right. And so they have not been when you talked about in your opening being thrust into an environment where you have to learn other people's cultures and other people's. Most white people live in an insular bubble where they don't have to do that. And so when they get outside of that bubble and they're in workspaces or they're in academic spaces or they're even in social spaces, they don't have the infrastructure, the framework with which to, to have these discussions. And so they retreat or they get hostile and defensive. So that's the first part. The second part, though, um, I lecture about race all the time. I just gave an anti-racism training uh, to some um, um, detention facility mm -hmm. uh, executives yesterday. Um, I don't make people feel comfortable. I start off by saying this is going to be uncomfortable and you should expect that. I don't think we need to make people feel comfortable. You Discomfort To hell with politically growth. correct. Being politically yeah, yeah, well, correct. I, well, what I tell people in these discussions is I insist on authenticity and candor but also grace because you didn't know what you didn't know until you knew it. Right. And so you should give other people the same kind of courtesy because they don't know what they don't know until they know it. Right. And so um, I don't attempt to make people feel comfortable. I tell them that discomfort is part of the process. You've been comfortable long enough. That's why we're still in this predicament. Discomfort will force you to grow and change. And that's what I'm trying to cultivate a healthy discomfort, the kind that makes you do some serious introspection and self-reflection. So I don't think we need to go out of our way to make people comfortable. I think we need to be honest. I think we need to be kind, but we don't need to make people feel comfortable. Rashai, I think you it's nice. an uncomfortable topic for a reason. You, you way nicer than me because I say to hell with political correctness, it's okay for you guys to be a little bit uncomfortable right now. And, and speaking of that comfort, here, here's another question from another comment from the audience. Um, frontline listener TJ Allen says, uh, so since we really want to get the message out about Black Lives Matter, hashtag BLM, what's your take on all lives matter? <laughs> you, before you even open up your mouth, Rashad, let me let me just say something. Mr. TJ, if you still I, you, you look like you one of my younger users, unless you got one of my younger listeners, unless you got a picture of your son up. The, all, the Black Lives Matter movement is a a. Would, would you say conflated movement that really doesn't even include the black male apart as a part of it? I am a fan of the Black Lives Matter, the Black Lives Matter banner statement, but the organization itself, I, I, I throw a finger that's not my index finger up to it. Miss Rashaya, uh, you can make whatever statement you want to make. I can go into this really deep, but I, I choose not to because that might be a different show. And I might have to put I might have to put that together. But the the women from the LGBTQ movement of Black Lives Matter doesn't include that heterosexual male in leadership positions, nor do they want us 
uh, or have an agenda for us, and we don't know what the ROI is on the return. We don't know what their ROI is on their money that they receive because they are they are a well-funded organization. Um, but I'd be I'd be wary of about TJ. I'd be wary about who you um, you spend your money with. But however, Black Lives Matter, the slogan that we are trying to push out to people, I absolutely fly that banner. Just not the organization. Um, so I will give two points. I will respond to what he said and then respond to what you said. Um, I, I don't think that all lives matter is in question. I think that that is a, an attempt to undermine um, the goals of Black Lives Matter. I don't think that that's a real rallying cry because no one said all lives didn't matter. We're talking about the ones that are being devalued, right? You right. don't go to a, can a breast cancer function and say all cancers matter, right? You right. recognize that that space is for breast cancer, right? That that is the focus of that movement because that's disproportionately affecting a part of the, of the subset of the population. So, I, you know, when people say all lives matter, black lives never said all lives didn't matter, but all lives can't matter until black lives do, right? And so, right. and what we have is a, a systematic and incessant devaluing of black lives across all kinds of spaces. I saw an article on Facebook that said Uber and Lyft have algorithms that charge more if you're going to predominantly black neighborhoods. Wow. Right. And so there's a constant devaluing, right? We call it a, a black tax, the ways in which black folks have to pay extra stuff for things that everybody else gets. Right. I mean, and honestly, um, um, that's what, when we talk about privilege, that's what white privilege is. The idea that I have to work extra hard to get benefits that everybody else just regularly enjoys. So I think that all lives matter is a rallying cry that attempts to detract from black lives not mattering, right? And so I don't, I don't engage that because I, I, it just seems like a farce that folks know is a farce uh, that's meant to distract us. All lives can't matter until black lives do. Hey guys, right? look. So, so I'm sorry. If, if hey guys, look. If you want to, if I, I definitely want you to get the opportunity to to engage with myself and Rashia. If don't don't hesitate to call in or not really call in, but click on the link and join us in the studio and and share a comment. I, I know you're going to be live and you got your, your picture is going to be on the on the live stream. But I, I definitely want you to engage with us. This is a we only got a four minute because Dave Chappelle on his way. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yes, Dave. What you think about what Dave said about um, Candace Owens? Was this in 846? This was in 846 when he said he wanted to kick her in her jolly part. Or at least that's what guys say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'm not a fan of Candace Owens. I don't need to kick her nowhere. Uh, he said her vagina smell. He doesn't know her, but he thinks it does. That's, that's what he said. Uh, she, she, says enough, she says enough to get on the black, to, to, to get the black community heated and, and, and started. Yeah, 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 yeah. She, you know, and that's, that's also not a new position. One of the things, I think I, I read this, I can't remember where. Um, but one of the things that I remember reading somewhere is that black folks who don't even believe in right-wing ideologies will often promote them because it is a quick ascension to the top, right? You are, you are, um, the black dot in the sea of whiteness. So when you speak, you, your voice is amplified, right? You are hyper visible. Right. Um, and so it allows for a very quick ascension in a well-funded, um, organization that needs your voice, right? That needs to put you front and center. And so well, they, they look for those opportunities. So it's a, it's a perfect storm for opportunists. Um, so I don't even know if I think she believes the stuff she says. She seems to be smart enough to recognize some of the pitfalls in her own argument. I remember seeing her very briefly. And by briefly, I mean like less than five minutes. She was on some type of town hall with T.I. 
And T.I. asked her a really simple question. He said, can you tell us which era you want to go back to when you say make America great? Which era specifically are you talking about? And she started, she was like, well, I mean, slavery was in other places. Like she couldn't even give a particular area uh, or era that she wanted to go back to. And I think that that's, you know, she's smart enough to recognize that there's some glaring um, inherent conflicts in what she's saying and she just wouldn't acknowledge them. So I think her inability to acknowledge the inherent pitfalls of her own argument discredits her, even outside of the ideology. I have friends who are Republicans. Right. Um, so I, you know, we can agree to disagree, but I think I don't I think she's using it as an exploited yeah, she's quotes, I think she just wants to be she quotes you know, the other, in front of the camera. She yeah. wants to get money. But you gotta remember what her husband looked like, what what city and state she grew up in, what colleges she went to, her experience that she had. She 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 has a different side of a, a culture. Her skins just happen to be black. Hey guys, you, you Well, she's line, actually sued for racism. So I wouldn't even say that because she girlfriend has sued for racism. She so has. I, we've seen that, but you I, I just feel like that's them that's her quelling the the in appeasing um White people. I, I mean, I don't have any other way to say it. You guys, on frontline listeners, look, y'all, y'all killing the comments today, and I'm glad my 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 um my <laughs> software is working. But I'm gonna need y'all to call in. Some of these things are paragraphs. Y'all might as well just just come come on into the <laughs> studio with me and and just ask these questions because these is not comments. These are statements. Um, we got another I statement. Have to- oh, really quickly before we get to that, I have to address your Black Lives Matter. I can't let you off the hook. I'm oh, not you're not going. Let's go. Let's not go. Too. So I don't, I don't disagree with. Uh, uh, I, I don't know enough about whatever they're doing with their finances to to come to their aid or or to speak negatively. What I will say in regards to that, and this is just a general statement. This is not particular to Black Lives Matter. Is one of the things I hope that we do as a community is become as forgiving of ourselves as we are of other communities against us. We sometimes tend to scrutinize us more than we scrutinize outsiders. We're more forgiving. Everybody's been stealing money. Everybody misappropriates their funds. Everybody. So I want to make sure we're not holding ourselves to a standard. And I and I mean, I, it, there's some wiggle room for that, right? I remember this discussion when Kamala Harris uh, was running, and and we were talking about her history as a prosecutor, and we were saying, are we holding her to a higher standard? Yes, sis. When you come out, you know. Are you a soror? You come out with the soror. I knew it. Are, I, you, I had to know your, it. I knew it was your, going on. You you going and pumping your soror. You know that lady did. A, um, you 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 know Miss um, Attorney Kamala Harris was the same person that put the truancy law in place that put single black. Yeah, women. absolutely. Come on, absolutely. man. You got so to be. That's, ha- that's not a I high standard. People, that's easy. I told people. I told people she was not my pick. She was not my pick. And people said, oh, "Are you holding her to a higher standard because she's a black woman?" Because she is trafficking in black currency, yes, I am. Yes, I am. She is. She's at Howard. She's, you know, marketing the fact that she's an AKA. She's mm-hmm. a member of a historically black sorority. And she, I have to hold she her came to out on Martin Luther Center King, but she did, she came out on Dr. King's birthday and didn't even have a husband, her Jewish husband, her white Jewish husband sitting next to us. Um, but before we be, before we get to the next comment, Ben Ryman, I'm coming back to your comment. I, I swear I am. Um, right now we have <laughs> we have a bold listener that has decided to join us in the studio. Jaron, welcome to the front line. Please advise us what your comment or your your question question is. Well, my question is this. um, With everything going on today, myself, being a person who puts on a uniform and I defend everybody in the country, I don't see race, I don't see color. But at the same time, I'm fully aware and I'm awake and I'm well aware of what's going on. We as black people are tired of being treated second-class citizens 
and animals when we're no such thing. And that goes back to our ancestors back on the plantation days. But my question is, is as a veteran, how do you deal with racism in this country when you put on a uniform and you defend people of all races, colored creeds, ethnicities, religions, LB, GTQ, whatever, and you're still seen as a lesser person? That's one hell of a comment. Uh and a hell of a yeah. question. I'm gonna let you have it because racial neutrality is your thing. Yeah, we disagree. Um, so one, <laughs> I, I, so I don't know how to answer that. First off, let me just say I'm not gonna like. If you're looking for like a solution, I, don't, I definitely don't have that. But I do think though, black veterans have a unique, are positioned uniquely because being a veteran in a country that professes to value patriotism as much as we say we do, patriotism and 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 participating in our armed forces is the highest expression of that, right? Is participating, you know, willing to give your life for the country. That's a currency that we need to capitalize on. So I think that, you know, when we get, when they're having discussions about how uh, veterans feel disrespected by CAP's protests, right? Or, um, you know, you should go back to your own country. I also want to point out though, this is not a, this is not a new phenomenon. Veterans, first of all, black folks, there has not been a war fought in this country or on behalf of this country that black folks have not participated in. We have been at the front lines from the Revolutionary War on. We have been at the front lines of every single war. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing, though, is that our service in the war, um, even sometimes black police officers, uh, they are expected to operate as though they are neutral um, and, and don't have a race attached to them and don't have the history of that race attached to them. And so I think it's a powerful thing that veterans have the unique ability to do is to remind them that I am both a veteran and black and both of these interests are one and converge and I expect you to recognize both of them. You cannot respect and recognize my veteranness without also respecting and recognizing my blackness because those two things are interwoven together, right? And so I think that there is this constant effort to divorce the things from each other. And in fact, there was a campaign um, during the civil war uh, to stop black people from participating in the army um, because it was believed that that is a level of status that black people should not have access to. And so there is definitely this belief in our society that there's a currency attached to being a veteran that I think black veterans have a unique ability to spend on black issues. And so I think that the best way to combat racism is to amplify um, your calls for racial justice um, wrapped up in your uniform because that uniform gets a particular kind of attention that other regular black folks don't get. Jaren, I appreciate your comment. Thank you for engaging with us on the front line. TL. Yeah. I'm, I'm back to you. You back to me. Go ahead. Get and, back and on me. Yes. Yes. We need our black men to show up and support our leadership of the movement the same way we supported y'all leadership of the 60s movement when y'all intentionally relegated us when y'all purposely did not let us lead when y'all told us that a woman's place was not at the front line we still showed up we made signs we organized we called we did everything we marched next to y'all knowing full well that we probably had better plans i'm just gonna throw that out there our so women now, okay with that we are we 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 are in a position where we are, we have taken the helm, we have organized, we are doing all the shit. And we're doing all the shit, but y'all still not showing up for us. Oh, because that's not. I mind you, I mind you, folks have not turned out. We're getting a little better, but we still did not turn out for Breonna Taylor like we did for George Floyd. Oh, and Breonna my gosh. Taylor was shot eight times in her bed. You're going to so be mad I, at me. I really. I really, really, really need our black men to show up and support us. You, you I gonna, really need you're going to be you know mad what? at me. You're you going to be mad queen? at me. This 
I, I look, I, I love the queens. I love the queens, and I don't have a problem with anything that you just said when it comes to us showing up for you guys. Hell, we, we, they're highlighting um, black women across the government in Atlanta, D.C., uh, um, Chicago, all the, the, the wonderful black mayors that they are putting up, and the senators and the congresswomen, um, Val Demings, who's, who's being considered for um, – uh, vice president candidacy. Vice president. I, I, mm-hmm. I, I'm not going to lie to you. I love seeing that, but I almost feel like they're setting us up for, um, for, for us. That I think that's just a fur, further castration of the male as they, as they say, the, the, the Willie Lynch syndrome, they're, they're, they're putting you guys up because I'm not saying you're lesser than trust me when I say this, I'm not saying you're lesser than I'm saying they're putting you guys up because they feel like they can fight you guys. They can't fight us. They won't even let us fight. So you guys have been having a fight for us. But when you talk about us dealing with Breonna, Breonna Taylor, while this beautiful soul and queen didn't deserve to die, I do believe that the win was not in a conviction of the officer. I think the win was in the in in the new um, law being passed for no knock warrants because just as just as I would be. Just as if I was a cop and I was serving a no-knock warrant and somebody shot at me, I would absolutely shoot back to defend myself because I'm just serving a no-knock warrant. However, they should be held accountable, probably not be, uh, of, uh, they probably shouldn't be in that uniform um, because not only did they get the wrong house, they, they did a lot of things wrong. They didn't announce themselves when they got in the house. They, they did a ton of things wrong. However, if I'm also on her side, if I'm her boyfriend and I'm sleeping in the bed with you, whether I'm a thug or whatever they want to call me, which we found out later on that he was not, I would shoot okay. back too. So I don't, I can't find a whole lot of fault in that situation, but I do see that officers should be held accountable just like I'm judged on my job and my professional lifestyle. I, I probably would have got fired for that type of oversight. Um, so we do but, need and, to see more guess, action for that. And I, I, what I the only thing I would say before we get comments, because I know there are tons of them. Is oh, we got a whole a person in the one, backstage ready to come on. That I would take at face value if this were not part of a continued uh, history of slang. If this police department or police departments across the nation had not already been gunning us down in disproportionate rates when we're unarmed and pose no threats, then I would be more inclined to be amenable to that version of the story. But this is a part of a long trajectory of slayings at the hand of the state with no repercussions. And so black folks should have mobilized and took to the streets for Breonna just like we did for George. Hello. Um, I, look, I, I, look I, this is where I go. <laughs> I don't wholeheartedly disagree, but there are some fundamental differences that I do kind of take and say, hey, black people, let's take the win on this one. But I do want to add to the um, – to the to the group um frontline listener ben ryman you are now on the front line um please share your comment or your question with myself and rashia all right well first and foremost i want to say you know i appreciate you for your brilliance and everything um listening to you you know it's it's actually been a blessing and it's yes ma'am yes ma'am i mean you kind of stayed on course with everything not veered off topic so i love that but um my what i wanted to ask you is my thing um, when it comes to race is we always want to make um, white people aware of like, you know, what goes on with us. But I don't think we're aware of what goes on with us. Like, and what I mean by that is we ha- as I grew up, I grew up in, you know, impoverished neighborhoods, whatever you want to call it, hood, whatever you want to call it. But then I also went to school with white kids, you know, so I got to see both sides of life you know i had my mom who lived one way and my dad who lived another way 
So I got to see that side of life from, you know, black and, you know, from a black side. As I grew up, the biggest fears that I had in life wasn't about, you know, white people, the white cop, the white, you know, person next door or something like that, because I didn't live next door to the white people. Living next door to us. Mm-hmm. My biggest fear was us. Was us? Being gunned down, being turned in, you know, turned down to some gang or something like that. And yeah, I got influenced, you know, a lot by a lot of my friends and stuff like that. But when I guess what you know, what what do you have to say like to us to make mm-hmm. us understand, you know, that we have to come together more as a people. Mm-hmm. Before we can tell them about us as a people, because they they're not gonna understand us if, if they see in two sides of the coin, like they only see they'll see, you know, maybe this side that's dressed like me, you know, but acting a whole different way. Then they might mm-hmm. see a side that looks a little bit more like my dad, a little bit more upstanding. If they're seeing <laughs> these two sides, you know, and and man, you trying so... to say we need to get us some white friends? No, <laughs> <laughs> get you some white friends. Uh, right now we need to I'm be saying, telling the know, white people they... get some black friends. <laughs> Now I'm saying, you know, when they're seeing these two extremes, you know, these two yeah. very different extremes, yeah. how are they going to listen to anything that we have to say if, you know, half the time we're not even listening to what each other have to say? So I'm, I'm going to make two points. Um, the first point is, I, I think you made a really valid point and it's something I've been trying to explain to people, um, is that race, the history of it, the dynamics of it, are all complex. Mm-hmm. It's not, we assume it's simple and we all understand it, especially black people because we live in this skin. But the reality is that race as a topic needs to be studied like anything else to understand, right? It is not something that you pick up by osmosis. And so one of the things I try to explain to people is that black people, all black people, have racial insight, not racial expertise. But there's a difference, right? Yes. You have a valuable lived experience that allows you a particular insight into what it is like to live in a racialized body in a racist society. That is different, though, than having expertise about what race is. So the analogy I give to people is this. If you have lived through a fire, if your house has been burned down and you had to escape that, you have valuable insight about what it is like to experience a fire that most people do not have. That, however, is not the same as studying fire. You don't know what color different color fires mean. You don't know what how hot a fire has to be to melt a particular kind of substance, right? And so some people have both. Some people both have the experience of living through a fire and also study fire. Similar to race. Some people are both in a racialized body and they study race. So they have a particular insight. But we have to stop assuming that all black people have all racial insight because they're black. Right. And so we have to be more patient with each other because we are, and this is going to lead to my second point, we're cooked in the same sauce everybody else is. We grow up in the same racist society as everybody else does. We go to the same racist schools as everyone else does. We absorb the same messaging about ourselves as white people do. And so one of the things I tell people all the time is when I left high school, I was Candace Owens. Oh, no, don't say that. I was Candace Owens. You was Candace. I was very, like, racist. Race doesn't exist. It's not real. It's a victim. And what I tell people is that's the position we're all socialized to. That's the default position. And our school system does not do anything to uproot that. They do not. I mean, think about how many times you studied race in school. Probably none. And if you did, it was some variation of slavery we existed, but African it was bad. Then we studies. ended it. And then <laughs> Martin Luther King came and fixed everything else. And now we're all better. Do you like, not, we heard. not have any in-depth 
nuanced study of race. And so we also, you when you talk about us being feeling like we're dangerous, danger isn't skin color. We know, we've done studies on this. Danger is violent crime correlates with unemployment, not with race. Right. Right. Violent crime is the same across races at, at the same unemployment rates. What we found is that unemployment is a bigger predictor of violent crime than races. Right. We know that races commit crimes against each other, not against folks across the street. And again, we know that poverty is the biggest driver of right. crime. Not poverty, race. Right. Right. And so so we are and, and poverty, again, is, is a lack of generational wealth. It's a lack mm -hmm. of access to housing, it's a lack of access to veterans benefits. GI Bill that a lot of veterans took advantage of to create the middle class after World War II, we were right. left out of, right? So there's a whole bunch of things that go into where we are now that can't be fixed by a lecture, right? right. That can't be fixed by a lecture. We have to, I mean, we need to be aware of these things, but we also have to fix the systems and structures that we're existing in in order to make a lasting change. And I think that is more impactful. So when you talk about why do we engage white people, because white people are the people with the power. Right. And changing right. the systems, changing our educational system to incorporate actual black curriculum. Right. To, to decolonize our educational system. That's more effective than me telling my neighbor, quit sagging your pants, quit, quit being an N.I. You know, right. right? Yeah, Barack that's, Obama I mean, said that. That's, that's what Barack Obama and um, Bill Cosby always seem to tell us. Right. Um, I, so I, just I, real. I was going to say real quick um, and, and then I'm done here. Okay. Uh, uh, back to what you were saying about, you know, that, you know, um, pretty much we um, about our education, you know, and stuff like that. At one point we did have it to where we had, you know, a black wall street, you know, um, back in the thirties mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. that was destroyed, you know, and, and yep. what we they would call a terrorist attack, you know, so, yeah, they dropped the bombs but we on did, Tulsa. but in a time where we had, a, as you, you know, in a time where it was a lot more, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, overt racism, um, we were able to build that. And today we have a lot, we have a lot more wealthier, you know, black people today than we did then, but we don't invest in each other, you know, and, and I, you know, I got, I have an issue with that because again, that, that just to me goes back to us kind of just putting that self hate towards one another. That makes it hard to explain because we to don't the white like each other, man, what we go through. <laughs> so, so, like you know, I just want to know your, from your mindset, you know, like, you know, what would you say to like the young, you know, young brothers? Because, you know, black men are, are looked at as the leaders. You know, what would you say to young brothers like, you know, staying in each child's life and stuff like that to kind of help us understand that we have to start. We have to have our own um, investments. We have to have we have to own something. We have to have yeah, ownership. No, we don't have any ownership. Absolutely. Thank you for your comment, Ben Ryman. I'm going to let her answer that. I just want to make sure I've I, I, I got to be cognizant of the time that. Um, Ms. Yeah. G has given us, Miss Attorney G has given us. Um, so I do want her to answer the question. I know we have another person in the backstage. I don't think we're going to be able to get to you. So I'm, I am going to remove you from the studio. Um, but yeah, go ahead and answer that last question. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, yeah. Um, you know, again, I think that a lot of this stuff is stuff we believe that might not necessarily be true, right? I was just talking to someone about Black fathers not being involved. That's actually a myth. Um, that's being perpetuated in society. Studies have shown that like, even when black fathers go to prison, they're more likely than their white counterparts to keep in contact with their um, children. Queen, um, I yeah, think so, so right. again, the idea that black fathers have to be compelled to be involved in their children's life. And there's a whole history behind um, black parenting and how it's been disrupted by white supremacy that you can have me on for another show. But even that, right, is a myth. As a family law attorney, almost all of my clients are men of color trying to get 
parenting rights, right? And so the idea that somehow Black fathers are, um, you know, predisposed in some way to not wanting to be involved in their children's life is just not true. Um, it's just not true. So I would hey, encourage look. us. So what I would say to young Black men is start interrogating whatever you believe about yourself and your community. Interrogate that belief before you make sure it's true. You need to start being very critical of what you've consumed and how you believe it. Because a lot of us have consumed information and ideas that are not our own. And now we believe them based on a bunch of assumptions that we haven't interrogated. And so I think that thinking critically about what assumptions these beliefs are based on could be the most effective way to combating some of those issues. Ms. Rashad G, I can't um, thank you enough for uh, coming up on the front line with me. Like I said, this is this is not the news. This is couch conversation, people. This is me sitting down with some experts and, and me having the ability to just ask questions that everybody would ask um, if, if given the opportunity to sit in circles like I tend to sit in. <laughs> um, I, 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 th I think we have a ton of professionals out there who, who can speak eloquently as Ms. Attorney Rashia G has done today. I thank you guys all for the engagement, the comments. I guess I got my um, software shit together this week. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> can I give everybody my website? You absolutely can. I, I ain't gonna forget about you. <laughs> Look, y'all can find. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna let her give her give give, give her website, but I want to let y'all know she do TED talks. She Rashai, you can go to RashiaLaw.com if you're in Toledo, Ohio, and you're listening. She covers. You tell them what you cover. Go ahead. Let's let's do it. Rashiah G.com. R A S H Y A. G-H-E-E.com. All of my writings are there. All of my social media is there. You can follow me on Instagram at advocator A D V Capital A Capital K Capital A T O R. I'm on Instagram. I would love to keep this conversation going. I know we had comments and stuff we didn't get to. Thank you so much for having me on. I really, really, really appreciate it. And and my goodness, you got some. I want to just say this, frontline listeners, if you, please go to her website, RashiaG.com, because that's where I found the article on um, racial neutrality and her introducing me to a new word that I'm going to put in my vocabulary, which is conflate, <laughs> that she uses conflate. all the time. <laughs> but um, there's more articles other than racial neutrality, and, and I'm a proponent. Of, uh, I love her TED Talk. I want you to go out there and find Rashia G. I, I'm going to post her TED Talk and that article that she has on, on the Frontline Stereo podcast. Again, I really appreciate you coming on the front line. I'm, I'm sure the listeners do too. I'm going to let you go so you can go enjoy um, your boy uh, Dave, Chappelle. Dave Chappelle. And I want to thank about Reed for driving, who's been sitting here quiet, been letting me talk. Anybody, she ain't been listening to no music. She just been letting me talk. I thank you, Ring. For driving and letting me uh, uh, chit chat. So Ring was in there. She said, hey, boo. <laughs> I see I see another comment I couldn't get to you, but thank you, Reem. Um and again, uh Miss Miss Rashia G, attorney at law and black activist, please continue your work. Um and I hope to see you again on this show and, and be a uh, I hope you become a regular friend of the show and I'll be calling on you as, as much as possible. All right, I look forward to it. Thank you. No problem. I'll see y'all later. Well, how about that, frontline listeners? Look, I've been going over with uh, over my hour with these guests. I mean, like, what what can I do? What more can I say? It's this this is this is the situation. Like I said, I sit down with the professionals and I ask the questions. But as I do at the end of shows, I try to wrap this whole thing up. 
You know, just let me thank the listeners who engaged with us today. Those who made comments, I appreciate your comments. This is how we make sure our movement doesn't become a moment. We have to have the conversation about it. Those who engaged with us live on the stream, um, big special thanks to you. Uh, I love the fact that you were able to engage and have comments and questions for our, our guests. But as I wrap this thing up, I just want to leave you with these words. These are not my words. I want to leave you with them, though. If we were ever to reach the time when the only differences between Negroes and whites is the color of their skin, we must realize Negro poverty is not white poverty. These differences are not racial differences. They are solely and simply the consequence of ancient brutality, past injustice, and present prejudice. Present prejudice. These words were spoken back in 1965 by President Johnson in his speech entitled, Fulfill These Rights. And since 1965, now we're in 2020, we're still looking to fulfill these rights. Attorney G said it best. She said, the oppressors who need you to see color. Because as you continue to disassociate from the subject of color, you continue to ignore some of the core issues that the black community face. As you're quick to say, but I don't understand why they. Listen to yourself when you say they. What I'd like you to do is just remember the words of President Johnson. These differences are not racial differences. So see life in full HD, full of color, until the only differences we have is the color of our skin. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you guys for sticking with me. You can now back up off the front line.